You're listening to Think Sustainability, the podcast where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. I'm Tom Melville. A few times a week, I'll wake up, get dressed, put the dog on the leash and head out into the semi-dark for a run. I move through the paved suburban wilderness, past red brick houses, underneath jacarandas, over the tram line, under a rail bridge. Soon the suburb makes way for the river. I smell its swampy funk before I see it. Shopping trolleys, reeking mud. And somehow life, creaking old trees, dozens of birds. I saw a blue tongue once. Cormorants air their wings on the mottled bough of a half-drowned tree. A fish jumping cracks the dappled surface of the chocolate milk water. Just for a moment, the city seems to disappear. We've had it drummed into our heads that nature and the city can't coexist. That's not my experience, though. The more I look, the more I've found that I'm neighbours with all sorts of plants and animals. So I'm going to take you on a nature walk through Sydney to show you what's here, what it takes to keep it here, and what we stand to gain by protecting it. There are a few places in Sydney where the human species and the natural world collide more chaotically than on Cook's River. It starts in Yaguna, a suburb about 20 k's from the CBD. For a lot of its 23 kilometres, Cook's River is little more than a stormwater drain and the river channel has been paved. A lot of it is inaccessible and out of sight, hidden even, tucked away behind big fences or funnelled beneath main roads. It's one of the most polluted waterways in Australia, corrupted by diesel, battery acid, dead cars and cyanide. So it might come as a surprise to hear that I'm here to go bird watching. Yes, I've got one. Anything else that seems a bit light on? Magpie lark. What's that making that? Yes. Rufus songlark. Oh, Rufus songlark. That's wonderful. I'm with a group called the Mudlarks. They do a monthly bird survey along two sections of Cooks River. There are about 20 people here, mostly of retirement age, but also one guy about half that. They've been doing it for four years, and in that time they've counted nearly 100 different species. Today the talk is about the Orioles and an Australasian grebe we spotted fishing in the shallows, common elsewhere in the country, but a relatively recent regular to this river. It's a good sign, they tell me. Jennifer Kent is the woman with the clipboard. I ask her what keeps her coming back. Everyone feels on a high after being out here. One, it's social. Two, they're doing something. Three, they're exercising. And it's good for everyone, and it's a real community building. And we're walking along there, and we see two king parrots. And one time we saw five superb fairy wrens there. Small birds. So that's very satisfying. If you worked for years, giving up voluntary work, all this voluntary work, and having and seeing the results of all your good work, that's wonderful. You look just over the moon, just even remembering it. Oh, well, that, you see the looks on their faces. I, I'm a minor player. There are some people here that have worked You, you for keep years. the list. I'm an organiser. <laughs> Another twitcher, Joe, has been birdwatching with groups like this for about five years now. 
Yeah. It's like, how lovely is it to be up in the morning and it's beautiful and quiet. It's quiet, it's what I kind of like about it being, especially if you can get into the little pockets. Yeah. It's quiet and you hear the birds calling out to you and it's, and then you suddenly get, your eye gets in, you see the movement in the, tr in the trees and you think, oh, look, there's, <laughs> or whatever it is. And it really affects the whole of my life now. People are a bit bored to see tears with me saying, oh, look, there's a bird. <laughs> and yeah, it ch changes your whole world view really you're suddenly looking up in the trees and if you hear a bird calling out it's a bit different there's all sorts of research that links nature and access to green space to mental and physical health it's social for the mudlarks it's physical they're connecting with nature and with each other and at the same time building a city in which plants animals and humans can all thrive these people are happy out here on a slightly gloomy morning but the most exciting thing for me is that all around me is proof that in spite of the apparent conflict between the city and the environment, and in spite of all the damage we've done over the years, nature can survive here. It can and it does. Watch your step. There's a bit of a log here. Yes. The area all along here apparently was just basically a waste dumping ground yes. and the kids rode their BMX bikes and they still use it as a dumping ground, it except still, they still use the river for... For the lawnmower. Yeah. Half a million people live in the Cooks River catchment. It's one of the most densely populated parts of the country, and it would be easy to focus on the birds returning. But to be honest, most of the river is not that healthy. I'm at Rosedale Reserve, just a few k's up from where I went bird watching. The river here is unrecognisable as a river, just a muddy smear of water cradled in a concrete trough about 30 metres wide. It's a drain, and it looks like this for most of its course. I'm with Russell Cale and Hans Begg, two volunteers who've been tending to this site and many others along the Cooks for years now. They started with the rubbish, which Hans tells me used to be so thick you could almost walk across the river without getting wet. We started up by cleaning up the Cooks as over. When they have the uh, river cleanup, we might get 30 yeah. or 40 people yes. and pick up 70 or 80 bags of large weed yeah. bags of, of rubbish. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. But that's how we started. Mm. I've been cleaning up down near the sugar Race. mill. Oh, sugar mill. It was a clean-up Australia day. And I was riding my bicycle back home. Mm. And I saw those six or eight people <laughs> standing in the seat up to their knees. <laughs> there was that much. <laughs> we nearly lost hands of, of last year. He got out in the mud flats. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, I wasn't there at the time, but I believe he is slowly sinking into that's the mud. Right. <laughs> yeah, I lost a few gum boots. <laughs> Couldn't be <laughs> About 20 years ago, a group of locals took over this site when it was just a barren slope on the edge of the river, a windswept, weed-strewn wasteland about as biodiverse as a multi-storey car park. It's taken all of those years, but the locals have planted hundreds of trees, shrubs, grasses, vines, crawlers and flowers, and in that time, the birds have come back. The moths, the bees, the fish too. All these have been planted. This whole yeah. area. It's just amazing. A lot of them are flowering. Oh, yeah. We've got yeah. some purples, we've got little pink flowers. Yeah. This is a native plant, a, a, a creeper, Hardenberger valacea. And this is a grevillea. There's only about two grevilleas known to be in, in this area as a native. I can see a bee. Oh, there's plenty of bees. Which is a good sign. Oh, the bee's really busy this morning with some. These are the native bottle brushes yeah. growing in there. Everything we do is sort of designed to sort of flower at different times. So we've, we're trying to keep a continuous flow of flowers and food sources for the birds. 
We walk along the river in the forest of their creation and pop out onto a bridge and look back. This is really interesting juxtaposition, right? Mm. You've got the shopping trolley there with the ducks sitting on it. <laughs> yes. You've got the, your concrete drain mm. siding, the graffiti, and then all of it on the other side, hundreds of hours of work that you've put well, in to make a it lot a really, really and vibrant. It's, it's really coming back and we're really pleased with all the little birds. Like the other day, we'd finished work and we'd said, we'll go for a walk through, because I like to show the volunteers what's actually happening, eh? like all their hard effort. And we've got down there, and I'm, I'm usually crapping on about how we're rewilding the area sort of thing and all this. Next minute, <laughs> we're surrounded by an oriole and uh, some female golden whistlers, which are quite rare species, infrequent species. There was a lot of finches. Finches, yes. With orange-coloured beaks. Uh, red-browed firetail finches. As the other Hans and Russell show me a picture of what it looks like before. There really was nothing here just a few years ago. What a difference they've managed to make. What a lesson. What they've done here is called rewilding. They figured out what might have lived here before the city took over and tried to be as true to nature as possible. It is possible to build a city that supports nature. There are dozens of these sites along the Cooks and beyond. If you're ever walking anywhere in the city and find yourself among shady trees, waist-high grasses and all of a sudden birds and wonder how a multi-million person metropolis could support all of that, think of these guys. But it's hard. The work is constant. And while they've tried to be true to the area's ecology, it's not a natural environment anymore. If Hans and Russell stop tending to the area, the weeds will take over again and everything they've worked for will vanish. It seems like the city's fighting against them, but they aren't going anywhere. It's a challenge and it's a very satisfying thing when you start to see it come together. Like the last three or four months, as it's drying out a bit, we're actually starting to get ahead of the weeds. It's sort of <laughs> been amazing. You'll never win. The weeds will no, win. No, 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 they're right there waiting to come over. A lot of what was here before has made way for what is here now. And that's not just the plants and the animals, but the way they interact with each other too. That's what environment is. It's not a place or a thing, but a billion relationships between a galaxy of organisms as small as ants and as large as the humpback whales that migrate along the coast. Those relationships have broken down, which means that rebuilding the city's environment isn't as simple as planting a bunch of trees. We have to reconnect those trees somehow. Which is why I sent producer Lara Corrigan to the UTS library. Lara, hi. Hi, Tom. First up, set the scene. You're on top of a library. What can you see? So at the back of the UTS library, there's a terrace, a little oasis where students can study in the sun or take a breath of fresh air. It's seven stories up, and in the middle of a bed of trees and plants is a beehive. The hum of Broadway down below competes with these native bees going about their work. Because it's over 18 degrees, all the bees are out and flying around and foraging. Oh yeah, I can see the bees. Yep. And to be clear, this garden and these bees, they didn't just arrive there. No, so the bees were the idea of Judy Friedlander, UTS academic and founder of the not-for-profit Planting Seeds Project. One of the kids said to me recently down in a school in Melbourne, oh, are you the CEO of all the plants in Australia? (laughs) The beehive Judy has set up on this terrace is part of a network her organisation weaved to support pollinating critters around the city, the B&B Highway. Which stands for bed and breakfast for birds and bees and butterflies and bush babies and etc etc. Not all pollinators start with bee but lots do. They're essentially vegetation or plants 
mainly native plants and we always try to have endemic or native plants of the area and also some sort of constructed habitat and we're always at pains to say okay the hive's great and so are nesting boxes and so are homes for blue banded bees etc they're great but really we need to focus on the plantings. It's a simple concept. Bees and other pollinators can't fly forever. They need to take breaks. For example, bees only fly around 500 metres at a time. And in an urban environment, food and shelter can be hard to find. So creating these patches of green means these pollinators can lily pad around the city. There's now 130 of these B&Bs across three states. They're set up in schools mostly, but also corporate headquarters, retirement villages and social housing. It's really important to encourage biodiversity in the urban areas for a number of reasons. Firstly, 95% of Australians live in urban areas, so that's where we are and that's where we can help. Secondly, a lot of people don't realise how much we can help biodiversity. So this huge percentage of threatened plants and animals, animals including insects, live in urban areas. So as I said earlier, if we actually plant and help biodiversity by doing the right things, by planting endemic plants, by actually thinking of the species that are threatened, we can really support them. And that's not just about having little standalone pockets, it's about really starting to think about greening the urban environment. And, well, it's working. Judy has seen a tenfold increase in native bees and she estimates a 10% increase in other pollinators. So there's the plots, but there's also an education aspect to the bee and bees. Judy is literally teaching people about the birds and the bees. We've got four different um, parts of the B&B program. One of them is planting. And you'd be surprised how few students, how few young people have actually planted a plant and put their hands in the soil. And they have to be shown how to dig a hole and how to take the little tube stock out of the container and how to pat the soil around it. I remember recently one of the educators was actually demonstrating this and there was this audible, whoa, when he took the plant out of the tube stock. It was such a simple thing and they loved it. Judy says people engage with the project with enthusiasm because it gives them a way to do something for the planet. A lot of students feel really down and disempowered and negative, overwhelmed about what's happening, especially in the aftermath of the, of the fires and of course, we read about and see these terrible images of what's happening around the world and it's very recent um, experiences here. People feel overwhelmed. So what we have found is that by participants actually engaging in this program, because they're getting knowledge and skills and helping and feeling like they're contributing to something scalable, there's been a really marked change in their, their sense of hope and empowerment. So that's, that's also really important. In Judy's ideal world, We'll be looking at a map of this city, and among the crisscross of roads and public transport corridors, we'll also see an interconnected scattergraph of green spots. So while Judy is working hard creating spaces for pollinators, rekindling the relationships that make up the environment one plant at a time, similar work is being done elsewhere, but on a much, much larger scale, like on a city scale. Let's walk up, let's see if we can have a peek and not get flattened by a cyclist. We've got this... Oh, probably half a soccer field of grassland here, probably waist-high grasses, a few trees. What are you looking at when you look at this place? So I'm thinking about the systems that are sitting under all of these beautiful grasslands that we're looking at, and, and you can hear some of them uh, right now. You can hear the, the bird life that's uh, been brought back into the city as a result. And 
There are so many things that are going on that we absolutely can't see. I mean, That's Abby Galvin. She's the New South Wales government architect. Abby's doing no, some really cool work, like Judy, trying to reconnect all of Sydney's patches of green into one giant green grid for the benefit of the environment and us. Right now, though, we're standing on the edge of Balladurry wetland in Parramatta, looking at birds. The Parramatta River is just out of sight, somewhere beyond the mangroves. Apartment blocks peek out above the trees. Only a few k's east and the river widens out into Sydney Harbour. There's a highway nearby, but I can't see it. I mean, you just begin to see those beautiful little native finches in there. Now, I've never seen a finch like that anywhere near where I live, but this low-lying scrub provides incredible protection for those small birds so that some of the larger birds um, they're protected from. When we take that sort of an environment away, we don't allow um, the the diversity of of the species that we're seeing there. This was a heavily industrialised area once upon a time. There was a copper smelter nearby. Gas was produced from rich coal deposits under the soil. Union Carbide made pesticides here. And leatherworks, tanneries, sewerage disposal and shipbuilding have all played their part over the generations to pollute this river. It's getting better though. When you think about spaces like this, not only are they spaces that make us feel wonderful, you know, they're beautiful to be in, you can hear the, the birds and the bees, but they're, they're good for the birds and the bees and our pollinators, but they also help protect us <laughs> when we're wanting to sort of cohabit. We've got to allow it to sort of move and have, you know, the natural systems and the flows that it does so that we can both coexist. Abby takes a system-wide approach to urban ecology. How do we interact with the landscape and how can that be improved for the good of the landscape and for the good of the people who live there? Abby thinks about this in terms of a series of layers. When we think about development, we're good at our development grids, we're good at our transport grids and we're good at setting up utilities grids. And we've got to be just as good (laughs) as setting up our green grids and making sure that they're not a series of isolated areas but that they do connect. And because we're standing on the side of a river... We end up talking about water, in Abby's language, the hydrological layer. Everything working as it ought to, when it rains, those raindrops land on the ground and some of that works its way into the soil, watering all the plants and giving the microbes and fungi which live in the dirt a drink and recharging the aquifers. Some of that water dribbles over the soil and works its way into creeks and streams and rivers and then out to sea. But of course, things aren't working as they ought to. Last year, big chunks of Sydney were inundated. Tens of thousands of people were displaced, thousands of homes flooded, and at least one person died. Chaotic scenes of terrified people being rescued from their homes by neighbours in dinghies dominated the news. There are lots of culprits for any natural disaster. In this case, climate change played a part, as did successive La Nina events, meaning dams were already full to bursting when a massive rain bomb hit the region. But one issue is the fact that we've paved the landscape, Water doesn't seep into the soil and recharge aquifers. It rushes off roofs and footpaths, into drains, through culverts, and into concrete canals that in many cases actually follow the roots of long-forgotten natural creek lines. When all of that conspires with heavy rain, the water just has nowhere to go.
flooding as sort of the wrong terminology because we look at it as a negative thing rather than flooding should be something that's about wetting our landscape and supporting it and allowing it to act in in a way that is completely sort of synchronous with the rest of the natural systems we have. It works better if you haven't paved the landscape first. (laughs) Exactly but we spend all this time building levee banks and walls to try and sort of protect ourselves from the waterways that we've built along and that we've sort of concreted or we've had an impact on upstream so we don't allow them to to work in the way that they they should be working. A lot of the banks of the Parramatta River were marshy and waterlogged like this one, home to native grasses and bugs and birds and whatever else, and helping to moderate the natural boom and bust cycle of rains, remaining wet in the dry times and soaking up some of that excess water during the storms. They've long since been paved and built up, But what's happening here in a small way on this postage stamp of native vegetation on the banks of the Parramatta River in Western Sydney is pretty exciting. A patch of the beautiful chaos of nature right here in the city, an ancient defence against the worst the elements can throw at us. Let me try and put it like this. Paving on the land results in paving in the mind, I guess is one way to put it. Do you think that's something we're suffering from? I think we suffer from needing things to be easy. You know, we've got busy, complicated lives, much more complicated than they used to be. And we sort of go to an easy decision and to pave our gardens is going to be much easier and quicker than landscaping them and caring for them and tending to them. But, you know, there's there's so much that you get out of tending to them and caring for them and they give back as much as you, you give. And that's why I think we can do so much more with being able to educate the communities. Most of this wetland was degraded as recently as 15 years ago. But between local and state governments and an army of volunteers, Baladari wetland is being rehabilitated. And the birds and the bugs are proof that it's working. And Abby wants us all to be more conscious of just how remarkable that is. Understanding what this brings is what becomes incredibly important. And I think not only is it important to understand what this brings in a quite a large public setting, but what that can actually bring in your own environments and the opportunities. You know, we've got so many places to rewild. We don't just have to rewild the edges of our parks and our wetlands, but we can rewild our verges, we can rewild our gardens. And it makes an extraordinary difference. Back on the Cooks, leaning on the railing of a bridge spanning the river, chatting with Russell and Hans, it occurs to me that most of us travel across the urban landscape and give little thought to the environment that was here before and the environment that's still here now. We don't think about the plants and animals, bats and birds, frogs, lizards, flowers, grasses, still clinging to life in the dwindling habitats left to them in this fast and growing city. But they're here. And while we mightn't be conscious of the role they play in our lives, I do believe that we're richer for them, healthier, happier. They're fragile though, and they're precious. What do you think we lose in Sydney if we don't have places like this? Look, I think when, when I see the volunteers who come along, and it's men and women, and, and we encourage the children to come along as well, I think they just simply enjoy being out. You know, you, you're doing something with your hands, yes. and the create, creative juices sort of come out, and people go, oh, wow, look at that. Oh, that plant you really can actually hear it in their voices. Yes. You know, they really are very happy mm. to do a bit of a... We, we need it as a species, don't we, to, we do. to get... Yeah, yeah. I think you do. You've got to have that... Something that's it's a, just a life thing to sort of enjoy planting something. And, and we're planting it with a name. It's not just, like, happening randomly. 
Looking out on Cook's River, I wonder about that word, river. The banks here have been concreted and the uniform siding makes it feel more like a canal or a drain. It certainly isn't a river in the natural sense. But as I stand with these two blokes, among the wattles and the bottle brushes and the chest-high native sedges, and among the patience and the generosity brought to bear on this patch of city by two or three generations of retirees, I begin to wonder whether that really matters at all. I've seen a lot on my nature walk through Sydney. But above all, I've learned that this is what we've got to work with, and it's beautiful. Um, we'll plant specific things, and I try to encourage people to learn about the plants and what our deadly enemy weeds are. <laughs> Most of which are... Uh, <laughs> Most of which are over this one. <laughs> but it's a... <laughs> <clears throat> which is the frustrating thing. Hey, what have we got here? White-faced heron, is that right? Yep, that's right. That's us? Yeah. That's me, it's him. That come in. I live in Nashbury. That will come into my backyard. Oh, wonderful. <clears throat> I think that's that one we'll single bird. Back this way so we can uh, to before we do, I, th- I think we got a bunch of fish just in here. Yes. Oh, yes. They yes. come and see us. We were talking about... Uh... This episode of Think Sustainability was made by me, Tom Melville, and Lara Corrigan a 2Ps production for 2SER. The supervising producer was Lawrence Bull. Our series is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. It's made in Sydney on Gadigal land. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you can. If you'd like to hear more episodes, open up any podcast app and search for Think Sustainability. Thanks so much for listening.